4, May 11th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 45, Abrams and Nimoy at Tanagra. Overthinking, the final frontier. These are the podcasts of the starship www.overthinkingit.com. It's continuing mission to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it boldly doesn't deserve. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, you can find us online at overthinkingit.com. If you want uh, to talk about what is almost sure to be a podcast entirely about Star Trek. Uh, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com, leave a comment uh, after the show notes, or call 20EATLOG01, that's 203-285-6401. Is that right? It's 20EATLOG01. Uh, let's get right down to it. What is your favorite moment in the Star Trek movie, the franchise reboot? Mr. Matthew <laughs> Belinke. First of all, who was it that, that did that high-pitched singing of the Star Trek song just now? Was that you, Matt? No, that was Mark. Yeah, that, that was very, very impressive, Mark. Very impressive. <laughs> I'm ready to step up to the plate. Um, I really liked the whole sequence where they have to parachute onto the crazy space trail. And especially, I like the moment at the end of that where uh, Sulu... By, by the way, we should just say that this entire podcast is going to be nothing but spoilers. Spoiler alert. So, Spoiler. Not to send you away from our content. There are many fine articles on Overthinking It that have nothing to do with spoilers for the Star Trek movies, so just stop listening right now. <laughs> get to it. Um, and I, I do feel like it's a movie that should not be... It's, it's good enough so that like, I recommend if you have any interest in Star Trek whatsoever, don't listen to this podcast if you haven't seen it. And if you have no interest in Star Trek whatsoever, then don't listen to it anyway, because you just won't enjoy it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really like the moment where Sulu falls off, and then Kirk uh, jumps off himself to sort of like so so they could beam them off together just because i thought i've never it after all these episodes in which people have been transported i've never seen like a transporter situation like that where somebody has to like figure out how to transport them while they're falling through space and it was just a great example of like how everything old is made new again through like you know just a clever script yeah, I, I'm, I'm I mean, sure, that's, like, that's, that's a, I was trying like, to think. Actually, there were plenty of episodes where, like, they had to beam falling bodies, but I, I, haven't, I can't remember any. Or it's, <laughs> yeah, it's always, I guess because it's a little less expensive, it was always right as the body was about to fall. Right, right. I mean, like, like I think part of it is, like, just special effects are so far advanced. Even, even over, you know, where you were when most of the Star Trek movies were being made, that you can depict these action sequences, which were just beyond anything that could be done in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, or that, or that could be done on any television show these days with a, you know, with a TV budget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, it's, just, it's a vision that becomes possible when you, when you are given 2009 special effects and a lot of money. Uh, but I digress. Let's move, move on with the intro so we can yes. get into the haters. Aye, aye, Captain. Peter Fenzel, favorite moment? Oh, my favorite moment in the movie, and I like the movie a lot, was actually from around the same part of the movie uh, when Kirk and Sulu are getting ready to jump down onto the, uh, the platform, and uh, Sulu confesses that the kind of advanced hand-to-hand combat he's been trained in was fencing. Uh, and that, that just, I, I broke out like laughing and cheering when that line came out. <laughs> um, 
Because if you're like me, you remember the old Star Trek episode, Naked Time, where everybody on this ship loses their inhibitions and uh, George Takei becomes a crazy, like, swashbuckling fencer. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a great article I was uh, reading, a great interview with him uh, that I was reading in Cinema, Cine Fantastique. Um, and this was from February of 2008, where he talks about his experience training for that role, Sulu, how he's like, oh, it's so great. I got to get out from behind the desk. Um, they asked me what I wanted to do. I told them I'd fenced in college. I hadn't. I lied. You know, I got trained by the guy who trained Errol Flynn in Robin Hood. And it was this glorious <laughs> time. And the great thing about the inter- interview is that he, they keep putting in parentheses, grandiose laugh, because you know when George Takei laughs, he's like, ha, 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 ha. So I love that in the new Star Trek, they make Sulu a fencer and i love that how when he lands on the platform he actually like takes out a space sword of some sort not a lightsaber but like yeah a metal it's like sword. a crazy like collapsible sword yeah yeah and it's actually fencing and i'm like this is awesome i thought that the characterization that he has, there was yeah great. no that he has with him maybe yeah, the, exactly. maybe the maybe starfleet is like the uh, marines and your uniform you're issued a sword with your uniform yeah, maybe, maybe. But anyway, I thought that was one of my favorite pieces of fan service pretty much ever. And it showed that they really cared at least a little bit. Uh, it also came right after the guy in the red outfit uh, appeared on screen, talked smack, and like was promptly killed, which I thought was another is, is the fan service. Very prominent red shirt who in this yeah. case has like a red, a red drop suit. But I, I mean, I think it's, it, that is a great example of how they worked in the fan service in what I thought was a completely appropriate manner that like it, it, it doesn't make the uh, the people who don't know everything about Star Trek feel like they're outsiders. Oh but, yeah, like, you, you know wouldn't even Star know it's there. Yeah, yeah. And, but but it makes it makes you know that like the people doing this movie care. Like yeah, like they're yeah. you know they they know what they're doing and they're not just here to like remake a franchise they have no respect for. You know that that like they're mm-hmm. one of you. And Mark Lee finally. Okay. Um, the favorite, my favorite moment of the Star Trek movie was when I went back into the theater 20 minutes after thinking I'd lost my wallet. Finding <laughs> it still in the theater. Ladies and gentlemen, 20 minutes in a New York City theater in Times Square was just sitting there. Yeah, well, it's because no, no one saw it, obviously. Well, I'm just going to so, just, you know, assume that, you know, the, all the people going in to see the Star Trek movie are just... You know, um, they are just positive Look for people. wallets, people. There are yeah. wallets on the floor, and if you take them, you can get cash money. Cash right. money. Right. People and leave you can, their wallets. You also could, I mean, you could use the credit card before they report oh, it yeah. missing. Buy a bunch of Metro cards. There's no safety yeah. against that. So, so <laughs> that, for, that was obviously, you know, that was part of the movie-going experience, but not so much of the movie itself. So let me say that um, I had to think a little bit about what it was that was my favorite moment of this movie. The first thing I thought of was, the, at some moment, I can't quite pinpoint it, when I, I thought that, wow, this Chris Pike, is that his name? Yeah. Is really stepping into Shatner's shoes. And he has not only you know, channeled Shatner, but also made the character his own. But I thought oh. about that, and I couldn't quite pinpoint a moment. So then I thought, what's the next, another favorite moment, which is uh, when, uh, when Kirk runs into the old Spock. And he says uh, that old line, you know, uh, you are and uh, have always been my friend, my good friend. Right. Which was a great fan moment there, but um, what? <laughs> although I love the movie, I think one of the, the least just kind of gleeful moments for me was um, at the very end after you know um, Leonard Nimoy says you know to boldly go where no man has gone before, and then uh, they played the old school Star Trek theme song. Which let me do it again. Oh, 
the music cue really like tied it all up for me. It's like, this is freaking Star Trek. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah. they waited on it. I was waiting for it the whole movie, and I was afraid. I was sort of expecting it at the beginning when the sort of main title came up, and I was afraid it wasn't going to happen. And then when it came in, it just sort of like was the icing on a very satisfying yeah. You know, we should say it's, it's Chris Pine uh, was yes, the actor Pine. playing playing Kirk. Pike is the... Uh, is the, cap, the, f- the old captain of the Enterprise. Yeah, the first right. captain of the Enterprise, who is the guy who was in, I think, the pilot, right? The, yeah, it was the, original the Menagerie. Yeah. Yes, right, yeah. Yep. That's the one with the, with the aliens whose heads light up, right? Uh, they have the throbbing veins in their heads. They have I the think, throbbing yeah. veins, and then the, yeah. the, the like the rock disappears. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a I'm not a the original series guy. My whole Trek knowledge is is uh, the Next Generation. Mm. Oh, yeah, I'm all about I'm all about Voyager, man. All Voyager all the time. I've, I've talked to so many people over the last week who are very excited about this movie, despite having never seen an episode of the original series. People who don't really care about Star Trek at all are inexplicably excited about this movie. Yeah, like I was thinking, if you would ask me, if you told me two years ago, hey, you know, in two years there's and there's going to be a big summer movie that's going to be, you know, lines out the door, it's going to be sold out, everyone's going to want to see it, you're going to be standing in line, you're going to look up and down, there's going to be men, women, young people, old people, everyone's going to be uniformly psyched for like the first genuine time of the summer. And it's going to be a Star Trek movie. Right. <laughs> I would not have believed Star- you for a, a second. It's going to be a Star Trek movie with, like, no star. I mean, yeah, like, Leonard Nimoy a little bit. But, like, Eric Bana is by far the biggest star of that cast. Um, you know? Winona Ryder. Yes. Winona Ryder is a big star. I, Eric Bana is bigger than Winona Ryder. And hey, it was, hey, it was hey, very Harold. weird to see. Harold was in it, man. Harold Harold, <laughs> Harold, Harold went, went to White Castle. Castle. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and I love and what about what about Carl Urban of Xena Warrior Princess, Chronicles of Riddick, and Doom fame? All right, he's I know, Edith Elmer. And, and, and he was he was a mighty horse warrior in uh, in the Two Towers. I think yeah, you've forgotten. Exactly. I think you've forgotten Simon Pegg. Yeah, Simon oh, yeah, Pegg yeah. Also. I mean, and he's Simon. more of a cult star, though. He's like, it's almost like he fits right in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. It was but, funny. But sort of going off what Pete was saying earlier, I think it's like the mark of like a truly great execution that like. After you see the movie, it seems obvious and it seems easy. Like they they made that yeah. movie look easy. Like anyone could have done that movie. Like it was so like. Oh, but but then like why did nobody think of doing it before? Is doing like a prequel, going back to the beginning and showing how Kirk becomes a captain, and like because because it seems like such a. You know, like watching that movie, it seemed like such a natural story to tell, and it wasn't obvious at all. In a way, it's not like going back to the beginning, though, because I mean, they make the they they make the point that it's an alternate timeline, right? It's, it's one. Like, which I, think I think is very clever of them because it, it frees them from certain constraints, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and, and yet they were very faithful. Yeah, yeah. I poo pooed the time travel, uh, you know, technique when we were doing our summer movie preview a couple of weeks ago. Um, but having seen it now, I, I got to tip my hat to them. You know, they did it, and they did it in a way that, you know, didn't, I think because they didn't try to make it all recursive and, and fit back together, that's why it worked. They acknowledged that it is an alternate timeline. And I think, I think going ahead and destroying Vulcan was a strong move because it shows that they're serious, that all bets are off. Yeah. And, and that, like, you know that Kirk isn't going to die, but they established to, to my likeness that, like, it's not as if the future is preordained enough that none of this matters. 
Yeah. Right. They did the same thing at the beginning of the Doctor Who reboot when they blew up all of the stuff, like the old planets or the old Time Lords and all that stuff. Um, they, then they said, yeah, this is very similar. It's like, this is, an, this is different. The rules now are different. Don't expect us to be chained down by all the stuff. And it gives you a you know, good thing. It's like, oh, why is this different? Well, they blew up Vulcan. There was a huge space-time continuum rifts. You know? So it's, it's, a good, it's, a good, uh, it's a good technique. And they also sort of gave it the Marvel Ultimates treatment. And I think that the success of the Marvel Ultimates is to be uh, credited, at least in persuading some of these studio guys to do something like this. Because you, know, you take all those old, uh, those old franchises and you make them younger, you make them hipper, you give them fresh faces, and you don't hew that closely to the, to the uh, continuity. And it gives you a little freedom to tell some new stories. You know, or old stories in a new way. Yeah, but the, I mean, here's the thing. I think they they uh, they actually really did. They hit a lot right. Like the tone, I thought was perfect. The the balance of action and comedy, and that's something that like since the next generation, Star Trek has been kind of cloistered in this righteous, uh, austere, it's been very, it's been very solemn, it's been very high-minded. Yeah, no, that's that's what I was ab- about to say. Sorry. I was was agreeing with you by way of stealing your point. (laughs) Just don't step on my punchline. Zing! Um, And that that, that first, the original series and the the original movies, though I'm not nearly as familiar with them, I know that they were funny and there was banter among, you know, Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and Shatner, you know, that that was the, and the tensions and the quirkiness of the character, these things were played for laughs. Uh, a lot of the time. And getting that, I mean, seeing kind of the origins of that, you know, seeing the characters come together in a way that was consistent with... Uh, you know what you think they should be, and and uh, and yet was also entertaining, right? Like mm. is was uh, I don't know was good. I mean, I think the the fact that it was funny. I think the fact that it um, that it involved time travel because a lot of the best Star Trek episodes have involved. Uh, have involved time travel, and the best movies by far have involved time travel. Mm. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a four over two guy. By the way, I'll take uh, Voyage Home over Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Here, here's. I'll posit this to you. Wait, I, 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 oh, Go on. I'll say this. I say that that this movie was a ideological and artistic successor to the original series, but that since the Next Generation pretty much began, and pretty much since Star Trek V, so I'm looping Star Trek VI in with this, all the Star Trek movies have and, and properties have been about the Next Generation and not about the original Star Trek. Because the original Star Trek and the Next Generation are phenomenally different shows. Right. Like, they're so different. And if you look at the difference between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI, for example, how meditative Star Trek VI is, how much it deals with serious discussion of issues, how mu- and how little it deals with, you know, hokey cowboy antics and, and jump-kicking people, um, <laughs> I think it's sort of an attempt by the old guys to say, hey, we can do this too. Right, and then you, and then everything since then has been basically a sequel or a remake of the Next Generation, which is probably why Enterprise was such a disaster because they tried to make it like the original series without any of the fun, right? Like they tried to make it like a hero-driven exploration kind of thing, um, right? Shoot from the hip a little bit, but it was so serious all the time. Because it was too it was, earnest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all Next Generation from, from the theme Nine. song out. I think the theme song of Enterprise says everything you need to know about it. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But anyway, this was the first return to the original series and the spirit of the original series that we've right. seen in a long time. And, and um, ironically, it did have faith of mm. the heart. 
<laughs> one thing I did love about it was it also had it kept true to one thing, which is that at some point randomly in the far future, mod sixties fashion is going to come back. <laughs> and I love it that. Yeah, the short skirts, the little bobs, you know, like the haircuts, the, the mop the top boots. on the yeah, the boots. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Pete, I think I can make a, a further point about about the, the movies and the tone of the movies is that really from the very first Star Trek movie and certainly from Star Trek 2, which was the only one that like really, you know, like the, the original motion picture is sort of like the ugly stepchild of that whole series. Yeah. Um, they're really upper middle age to old people. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no youth in that crew. Good point. Uh, you know, it, I mean, like Star Trek Two. One of the major themes about it is that, like, you know, Kirk is an admiral. He's getting these bifocals. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, DeForest Kelly especially is like, you know, straight up an old man and everything. And I think that that it 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 is you know not since the original series have we seen the series about like these like young you know, sexy, energetic people who are really capable of a credible fight scene. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I think it makes a big difference having these guys that, like, yeah, you can believe that they're going to put on spaceships and, like, parachute onto this thing and, like, yeah. engage in this crazy sword fight. Whereas and that, Pine, like, they and, like, really put him through his paces. <laughs> right. and, and, and that, I mean, like, it's not like you don't see Kirk fight in, like, Star Trek 3, but it's always, like, a very particular type of Kirk fighting. <laughs> so, like, you don't necessarily believe that, like, this late 50s man is going to be, like, jump-kicking Klingons in the way that he does in the movies. So that, like, I think they, they brought, like, a, a, a vitality back to the series that, that really you've never seen, because I agree that the Next Generation ones are a little too ponderous, and that the ones with the original cast, they were just really too old to pull off that sort of, like, you know, sexy fun. Mm-hmm. Right, because it was 10 years, wasn't it, between the original series, which was late 60s, early 70s, right? And, uh, and the first Star Trek movie, which was early 80s. You were 79 uh, or something with Star Trek The Motion Picture. The Motion like, Picture, yeah. Was the Wrath of Khan. I'm, I'm guessing, but if I'm right, I want credit for uh, it. Oh, with that, yeah, with the bald girl. Star Trek, the, mo- the series only ran for three years, and it was right. canceled in 1969. And Star Trek, the motion picture didn't come out for a while. Isn't that astonishing the- that it was so short-lived and yet had a... It was such a well dis- pronounced. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, and and yet had such a decisive influence on, uh, you know, on representation, on science fiction representation, yeah. everything since. I mean, honestly, it was kind of a silly, shoddy kind of show a lot of the time. Totally. <laughs> it's painful there, to watch. There there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! It did get popular. Everybody has seen the uh, the infamous uh, Kirk. Worst fight scene ever clip on YouTube. <laughs> no, right? it's, it's terrible. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, like, watching the movie today, there, there is something about the vision that I, I think it's, it's an optimistic version of the future in which, like, most of the problems that plague our society today are no longer problems at all. This is something that we should get to eventually. I don't know if we want to do it right now because that's, I mean, that's that part of the... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's part of the Star Trek ethos, right? That, that it is, you know... This is just pretty awesome. Yeah, and that people are kind of free to be their best selves. Yep. yep. Uh, all the time. Yep. Like, First interracial kiss on network television, right? Sort of, yeah. Right. I thought the thing was they didn't kiss. They just got their lips really close. <laughs> I thought it was that they were mind-controlled. <laughs> I don't know if Shatner ever gets his lips close. Yeah, I don't know if Shatner ever gets his lips close. Well, it's not really that... 
I think I mentioned this before. It's not really that there's no like you know no flaws in humanity at, at all. It's just that you know like racism, for example, has replaced amongst human races and has now re- replaced with enmity amongst different alien races. You know, right. you green-blooded hobgoblin. Human. I mean, the very fact that Klingons <laughs> can like like intermate and and have a uh, offspring suggests that like they're not really separate species in any meaningful fashion. Well, right. it's yeah. funny that you bring that up, Mister Belinky, because if you've seen that single Next Generation episode, which handily explains, yes, the similarity it doesn't handily explain it. It it retcons is what it does. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it doesn't. Well, I guess so. I mean it is. It is uh, kind of a, an interesting question why everyone would have this kind of hominid appearance throughout the whole galaxy. But I think that that's, I think that's because they didn't have better special effects in the oh, 60s. No, that's exactly why it is. <laughs> like, you know, so like pa- painting a, a woman green was the height of, you know, of <laughs> cinematic art back then. And how great was that, that in the movie? That movie yeah, 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 that was a great scene. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Fantastic. I'm watching the YouTube video now of Shatner about to make out with Lieutenant Hora. It's very tense. They're very nervous. Oh, By the man. Way, I'm glad that they, that they gave that character a real role. I mean, I think if any if any character got a short change in this movie, maybe it's a little bit of Chekhov who sort of played for laughs. Mm. And I mean, I think I think he has actually. It's, it's during that transporter scene. He's the guy who is sort of like enough of a whiz at whatever it takes to transport someone that he pulls that off. Mm. But like, and Ohora, like you know, she she does have a thing or two to do, which is more than the original series can say for her. That's well, you know yeah. what actually let's well right because she's kind of the receptionist of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, her job is to open hailing frequencies, which is not that difficult to do. Chris Christopherson can do that while he's driving a truck. <laughs> <laughs> breaker, breaker, one nine. This is the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> open um, up there on the phasers, good buddy. So, okay, so Vulcans are the Asians of Star Trek, right? And Klingons are the black people of Star Trek. Asians are the Asians of Star Trek. No, no, no. <laughs> All humans are all humans are one harmonious family now, and yeah, you know yeah. ethnic differences have been eradicated in favor of. of I think for the Vul- Scottish brogue. I think Vulcans are supposed to be Jews, right? Oh, you or, think so? Oh, that's a good point. Or maybe that's just uh, Nimoy's influence on it in particular. Um, you know, the live long and prosper symbol being a symbol, a rabbinical symbol, right? Yeah. Right, but uh, I think that, that might be something he brought to the character. I don't think it was like. Yeah, probably. The, I don't think Gene Roddenberry cared. <laughs> yeah, so they're probably not overt. It's probably like if you wanted to make that kind of analog, you want to talk about a you know into over intellectualized like. But Spock was also super physically strong and like very sexy, right? Like that was kind of his deal. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but back in the '60s, he was a sex symbol, right? So I'm not saying that Asians aren't super strong and incredibly sexy. I mean, we all know Mark, but um, I'm just saying that maybe that's not the maybe that's not the analog. Mm. I, were you thinking yeah. of in particular rather the? Uh... <laughs> seen the Vulcan kids are studying in their, in their study pods. They're really like, sure that's, the one that's, that's, that's what I like. Oh, damn, they all seem. They all seemed very good at math. 
Yeah. They, they never show you the Korean part of Vulcan where they're all playing StarCraft. But, Baba. <laughs> I mean, everyone in this movie is like StarCraft. <laughs> yeah, that's true. One big game of StarCraft. Oh, boy. So, okay, so what do we have in the future? We have no racism in the future anymore. We have no poverty in the future anymore. Nope. I mean, one thing that they didn't make a big deal about the movie, but they make very clear in the next generation is that, like, the hunger is not a problem because you have replication technology. Mm-hmm. And you, like, have a, you have a virtually <laughs> unlimited source of energy. Right. You have, you have all the energy you want. You have all the food and clothing you want, although they, they didn't have any replicators in this movie. So I'm, I'm almost wondering if there's sort of there – were, there were little changes in the way Star Trek physics worked. Like I felt like transporters worked a little differently in this movie than they have in the past, and I feel like that's sort of a conscious choice to make them more – to make them a little more difficult – and thus more dramatically interesting. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that uh, the only thing you could do was block them, and then someone had to set up those poles in a triangle, and it was really weird and annoying. Uh, <laughs> that was always a stupid part of the episode. Where it's like, oh man, Commander Riker has to put the three poles up. And oh, he tripped on a rock. Oh, he tripped and fell down. And there's a lightning storm. And he's not going like to ep- It was like an episode of Legends of the Hidden Temple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Cole Mania has been captured by a Mayan temple guard. And like Brent Spider has to pick up the the pendant of life and try to get don't, to space. Don't laugh. There, there was definitely an episode where like um, Wesley Crusher and, and Commander Picard were like stranded on this weird planet, and like they, like like Crusher was trying to get the water, and like he had to like distract this entity guarding the water. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. No, they were and, underground. It was they were in an underground cave. And, right. he had to and that, that the was shrine of silver monkey. <laughs> 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 okay, so we talked about these things that they don't have in the future, like racism and poverty. You know what they do have, apparently? What? Is giving uh, you know people unfair expectations of their character based on their parents. All right? Captain uh. freaking Kirk. Right? I think that's a very, like, old school, old world, even by our perspective, old world adi- way of judging somebody is by their parents. Right? Mm-hmm. Your dad was a great, uh, you know, Starfleet captain. Therefore, you, too, will be a great Starfleet captain. I've got faith of the heart. I've got... Yeah. Well, the thing is, Gene Roddenberry was a communist, but he was also a sentimentalist. So he didn't have the stomach for real communism. Was he actually a communist? Uh, I don't think... No, he wasn't like a... Uh, he wasn't a flag-carrying Marxist or a Leninist. But he was like a pretty... you the philosophy of Star Trek is vaguely, vaguely communist. It's certainly like sort of... Uh, sort of like vaguely 60s liberal to a real extreme. Um, you know, and I mean... I'm particularly thinking about... I read Shatner's movie memoirs, and he right, talks and about... and overlooks... And, uh, and actually, the, it makes some of the intellectual mistakes that that kind of romanticized version of socialism makes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It basically makes socialism look really easy and have no drawbacks right and like Um, right it's and that it's compatible with this federalism uh that that i think is kind of uh really lionized in the federation of planets where each planet has autonomy and yet they all are collectively governed together uh and and that is somehow compatible with the central government's controlling you know all transportation all commerce all uh you know and Sorry, the flagship people. is called Enterprise, and the hero is a guy who doesn't follow any of the rules. Right. So, so there's definitely like a, a combination. Can of you guys? Can you guys think of one single episode of like Star Trek that that hinged upon like politics on Earth? Like, you know, whoever was running for president of Earth. Yeah, absolutely. You know? There was uh, in the second or third season of Next Generation. There was one where 
Uh, well, I guess it wasn't necessarily about Earth, but it was about control of the United Federation of Planets. There were these bug parasites that crawled into your <laughs> mouth and yeah. uh, latched onto your spinal column. Actually, yeah, much like one. much like the one that Eric Bana used to get yeah. Christopher Pike. Is that supposed to be it? Because I thought that might be a, a Wrath of Khan reference as well, but those go through the ear. Yeah, no, yeah, this, I, these were uh, – oh, were they the same – were they the same bugs? It's I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, yeah. like – that there's a certain continuity for the fanboys. Well, the yeah. so right that the um, and so these parasites were taking over people at you know Star Trek High Command at uh, what Feder- the Federation High Council Samurai Jedi Roundtable whatever. And so like yeah. the bugs were like you know the the new faction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that like yeah, they had to, they had don't to be- blame me. I voted for Curtis. <laughs> 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 It's like the Carlisle group of space. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that, I mean, that's the only one I can think of. Mm-mm-mm. You know what always, you, you know uh, what I was thinking of writing an overthinking post about, and I want to sort of bounce it off you guys, is that, and I think with good cause, because there's no good way to do it, they're always, how far in the future does it take place? Like 200 years, roughly? Yeah. Uh, I think 300, like, right? Or 23rd well, century? Or is it 22nd century? It's 23rd century, but it's, uh, and then Next Generation is 24th century. So, like, let's say 250 years in the future is this movie. Yeah, we don't That's, see, we don't really see a path to that kind of uh, life, do we? No, well, what I'm saying is, like, as far as we could tell, there is no pop culture between now and 250 years from now. Mm. Yeah, like, for sure. Does, does anyone ever like listen to rock music that takes place in the next 250 years? Everyone listens to classic rock from the 20th century. Everyone plays classical music from like you know 500 years ago, their time. You know what I mean? Like, like, and, and in a way, I think it's it's good because like, is there any way to do it that doesn't seem cheesy? Like, Ohora is like listening to like a cool new band that's actually contemporary. Yeah, or because if you do that, then it's like it's like the Mos Eisley Cantina or something. Well, they do that a lot. They do that a lot. In Next Generation in Deep Space Nine, though. You know, do they that? talk about. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Data like will reference it. It'll always be kind of offhand. It'll be like, oh, the famous twenty twenty first twenty second century comedian, like blah 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 blah, or like Joe you know, the, Piscopo. Joe Piscopo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Joe Piscopo is very popular in the future. <laughs> but and then like and, and also Bajor and all the stuff on Bajor and their prophecies and their culture and like all the guys that come through the Deep Space Nine stuff and but, like um, is there an equivalent of movies in the future? Do they have like hollow movies that that are like they're like oh here comes the summer blockbusters are going to be beamed to the Enterprise? Yeah, but why would you want that if you could like if you could go play? You know, I, I guess is it, is it like the the idea of like storytelling has been rendered obsolete by holodeck simulations, and- or that yes, yeah, you sort of go in and make your own stories. You tell your own stories to the holograms. People, people in the Star Trek future all have jobs that are very demanding on their time and energy. <laughs> None of them are particularly uh, full of leisure time. I mean, like Captain Picard likes yes. to read every once in a while, and Data yeah. paints, but like they're all working like probably twelve, thirteen hour days. Um, but, but I guess that's the cost is, of socialism. It is interesting right? that like in the in the in the scene in the bar scene it's basically yeah. like like she's ordering beer and they're listening to i guarantee you whatever song sto- whatever song is on the stereo is like a song that like you know we know Mm-mm. 
You know, which is like, in a way, it's it's implausible that 250 years from now, when you go to like a dive bar in Iowa, they're going to be playing a song that's 300 years old. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, are you playing? Yeah, right. Exactly. At, at our bars, are they playing 300 year old music? But at the same time, I don't think that there's a graceful way around that problem. And I feel like in, in a way that like you ever read an interview with um, uh, what's his name? It does Deadwood is David Milch or who is it? Who is it? the guy who writes Deadwood? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head who writes. Does Deadwood? nobody know this? Oh, I figured you all would would make fun of me for that. I've never seen Deadwood. It's one I of my. Like, I watched a couple episodes. I I gotta say, I couldn't get into it. Really, it seems it's interesting. I, thought, I mean, I I, I yeah. like. All right, Deadwood has very um, colorful profanity. You know, right. I mean, there is a lot of like, you know, very profane profanity. And the thing is that if you read an interview with the guy who writes it, he'll fully admit that the profanity is not at all the profanity that they would have used back then. What he's doing, you know, and, and you, could, you can call him a pretentious ass if you want, is he said he's substituting modern profanity for the anachronistic profanity that they'd used back then. So it sort of sounds, it has the same effect to our ears, even though it's not the words they would have used. And in a way, it's like, I almost feel that, that you know, that, that's what they do in the Star Trek universe is that like, they, you know, they use modern day pop culture because inventing pop culture wouldn't mean anything mm. to us. You know, if they if they just had people listening to fictional rock music of some strange tonality, and the same, be, you know, yeah. the same thing is true. I, the same thing is true of Deadwood. It's true of like productions of Shakespeare and things like that. And it's you know, I think that's right. I think entertainment is not a PhD thesis, you know, and it's not. I don't think it has to strive for historical accuracy at every turn. The idea is to create a mood or to communicate something as economically as possible. There's surprisingly little actual mariachi music in like the Il Mariachi and Desperado movies. <laughs> they, they definitely like to change things so that they're a little bit less alienating. That's definitely true. It's like translating from a different language. It's just like that because you pick words that have the similar effect, not words that mean the same thing. And so, if the past yeah. is a foreign country, then certainly the future is uh, Benzel, you made, you made, an undiscovered you know, country. country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Benzel, I, I, like the phrase, I like the phrase you used there earlier, just to, um, to change things to make them less alienating. And that yes. you could just apply to the entire movie as well, right? Mm. JJ takes Star Trek and making it less alienating. And, you know, yeah. I was and thinking of what he was hired for, that he was supposed to be trying to make Star Trek more mainstream, right? Yeah, and I was contrasting that. I was thinking back to Watchmen, which was not trying to make it mainstream at all. It was like a dedicated, you know, straight up, let's, you know, stay as close to the source material as possible. Whereas this is, well, let's, you know, all rules are off. Let's, let's you know, let's not be hindered by the source material because frankly that's what we're trying to get away from in some ways yeah i mean watchmen Watchmen the movie is a lot less alienating than watchmen the comic book but it had a lot of a farther distance to come uh because that that comic book can be very like the part where the guy goes cannibalistic on top of the raft like tied together of naked of dead bodies that that would not play in a major (laughs) cinema that's a a little hard to swallow (laughs) yeah yeah watchmen is tremendously oh kapow i didn't even see that you upside my head on that one man (laughs) i just got supermaned Oh. <laughs> you, you mean, you mean and like boom, Night Owl? boom, Leonard Nimoy's with man. Boom, Len- <laughs> Oh, man. But no, yeah, it was a go, movie. Going back to what well, this is what I've been thinking about, you know, in terms of what we were talking about before about, you know, the rules being off and things like that. And, you know, that, you know, that Star Trek had kind of gotten bad, right? And that, was, that kind of gave him the opening to do this. Because this, I was thinking, this, this is like easily one of the most ser- significant franchise reboots. We've had in a long time, right? Mm. If you think about Batman, I'd say Batman. But they they rolled out how many feature films? 
did they roll out for that? And then they rebooted. Right? Yeah. I mean, Star Trek, we're talking about how many? Ten movies? One, Eleven. Two, this, is the, this is the 11th one. So, yeah, it was ten movies, yeah. Ten movies. Yeah. But they rebooted it in show, uh, Generations. Five, so. They've rebooted it a couple times between then and now, right? They rebooted it in Star Trek Generations when Shatner cross-starred with, uh, with, Pat, with uh, Patrick Stewart. I wouldn't call um, it a reboot, a reboot, though. I mean, that's just, you know... Just, I guess not, yeah. You know, it's, it's just a continuation passing. of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Sort yeah. of, yeah. I, okay, I mean, it was, ma- it was a reboot, but it was made to appear like a continuation of the story. How about, uh, how about Godzilla with Matthew Broderick? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the closest analog to what we're dealing with here. Yeah, you know there there is a Godzilla movie that came out in 2006 in which God, Godzilla, like the real Godzilla, quote unquote, because Godzilla's not real. Uh, spoilers: Godzilla's not real. Uh, fights the Godzilla from Godzilla 2000 or whatever it was called. Yeah, they, they get like, yeah and he kicks his ass. It's very funny. But uh, it's, he, like, what's it called? In- it's like Godzilla. I know this. It's directed by the guy who did a versus. Oh, that's who does it? It looked so cool. I was looking, watching YouTube clips of it the other day. Um, Godzilla. I think I looked at it on YouTube under easiest. It's, I think it's easiest fight ever for Godzilla. Is when he fights the uh, Godzilla Final Wars is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, that's what the movie is called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it looks like a lot of fun. The guy who did Versus is so freaking brilliant. Uh, did you ever watch that one with a little girl that you couldn't get the DVD to work on? Back when we were trying to oh, watch it? Azuma? No. Azuma. No. Yeah, no it, never for, those of you, for those of you who don't know Versus, it's, it's, it's um, uh, Japanese gangsters heavily armed with guns versus zombies versus samurai. Sort of. It's a mashup of basically everything the director thought was cool and like mm-hmm. had the money to shoot. It... it, it it's it's wonderfully it's it's a sort of like you know movie that you'd get if you gave like a ten year old like you know the resources to make a feature film. Yeah, it's directed and written by a guy named Ruhei Kitamura, uh, who has this wonderful sense for keeping things exciting while making them a lot of fun as well, um, and a real sense like for excess. JJ Abrams. Just, yeah, like JJ Abrams, he's sort of like JJ Abrams, but like uh, you know ten years ago um, was when Versus was made. Yeah, nine years ago, crazy. So. Oh man, that was time flies, man. Time flies. Seems so just yesterday. J- speaking of JJ, <laughs> for the people who have um, who have seen uh, Lost and can speak to kind of any similarities or differences between Lost and this uh, and this Star Trek movie. I mean, I've seen enough. I was not a fan of JJ Abrams before, pretty much today. I mean, it, it's not so much that I didn't recognize he had talent; it's more like he had not. I can't really say that I. I thoroughly enjoyed anything he had done and and so that like i went into this movie sort of prepared to be a skeptic and i mean it, he really won me over this is you know I, I was not a big fan of like mission impossible 3 which was i oh. guess is really only other big feature up till now right though so it did i mean the- cloverfield 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 right he didn't direct that though oh he didn't direct it or just produced it no it was like he produced it it was like his idea oh. some guy oh. named mad reeves directed it Oh, fair enough, fair enough. I I really detected uh, a lot of felicity in the Star Trek reboot. Mm. That was, you you know, it's like... Or do you want to push that one? That that love triangle between, uh, uh, you know, between Carrie Russell, Scott Foley, and whoever the third guy was. Uh, What was that character's name? Ben, right? Was kind of like like Kirk, Spock, and Uhura, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Hey, here, here's that's a fun as, that's little. That's as far as I can push it. I think. <laughs> here's a fun little through line thing. So while you guys are talking about J.J. Abrams, I'm thinking, well, we're giving a lot of credit to him. Who else is responsible for this movie? And I was looking. There's a guy named uh, Robert Orsi, who or Orky, who the, the wrote. Writer. The writer yeah, who wrote this Kurtzman, movie. Yeah, him and Kurtzman. And, they're, and they, those and guys are like a hit factory. Yeah, well, right. they... Like, like, like they're, they're the guys who actually execute the J.J. Abrams ideas. They go out yeah. and like actually put together a script. Hey, you know, yeah. they, they, that's they how we roll it. That's how we roll at Crossroads. Yeah, they, they, they did a lot of the heavy lifting on Lost, Fringe. I think they wrote Cloverfield. Well, and they, you know what? They've worked on three of my favorite shows, which I didn't know. And they worked on them. They both worked on them, both as they executive producers and writers. Uh, no, a little show called Hercules: The Legendary Journeys. No way. A little, a little show called Xena Warrior Princess, and a little show called Jack of All Trades, starring a little-known actor named Bruce Campbell. Oh, so apparently, man. they they all wrote and produced for the that's you know was it Sam Raimi right? That's Sam Raimi's yeah. That, that's the Sam Raimi like like TV franchise. Yeah, they're from the Sam Raimi Dream Factory. So he's uh, kind of like he's like the Roger Corman of Sam Raimi is like the Roger Corman of our time. I, I think very much so. I don't know if you said that as like a, like a joke, but I think there's a very no, legitimate. No, I'm trying to make. I'm trying to actually seriously make the the comparison. I think there's something to be said for kind of cutting your teeth in these relatively low stakes, low budget uh, sectors of the to turn out quality entertainment with like no grand ambition. Well, I mean, right, yeah. exactly, and also to do it with, to do it economically, to like to do it without huge budgets or uh, you know or anything like that. Like if you're M Night Shyamalama Ding Dong, and you know every <laughs> good God, every, <laughs> good you know, Christ, man, Christ. every you know every one of your uh, precious little visions needs three hundred million dollars to you know see it through to fruition. I think that you're not you're going to end up an inferior storyteller. To these guys who have not to not to sort of glorify it too much, but who have kind of been in the the, the who've kind of been in the entertainment trenches a little bit. Also, uh, you know, they're they're fellow alumni of my high school, so they mm. have to be good. Well, I think that when you, if, if you really were a concerned micro-historian, you could probably go back and tie a lot of what has been happening in Hollywood over the past 10 years or so to Hercules' The Legendary Journeys. I mean, if you think about the rise of the New, Eng- the New Zealand film machine and like everything that it's done for like the globalization of movies and like the sort of the, the diffusion of talent and all of the rebirth of sci-fi that's come out of leveraging people out of New Zealand and Vancouver and all these other places, I mean... You know, you've got you've got all sorts of stuff, and now it ties into J.J. Abrams too. I had a professor in college; he would have gone crazy over this shit. He would have loved it. Excuse my language. This stuff, this stuff. And I mean, but it's a nexus, man. In, in nexus. ancient times, the gods were petty and cruel. I mean, it's true today as it was back in, in Greek times. You know what? I'll tell you one thing I really liked about this Star Trek movie is that in this Star Trek movie, if you have to get from one place to another on the Starship Enterprise, you run most of the time. You don't walk. Like, it, 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 yeah, it's like Aaron Sorkin style. Like the cameras panning across and people are rushing through the corridors, except that they're on a full-on tilt. They all run like the T-1000 with like their hands open and like very neatly, like very much like uh, military officers um, from some sort of sleek mod era of post-60s futurist. By the way, how how good did that ship look? I'm talking more like on the outside. Oh, oh, that sexy, sexy thing. It's weird because like, like. I never really thought that before. It's like, you know, like in the original series, which I, I've, I've saw a bunch of, it's not really like a pretty ship because it's a primitive effect. And it's only in really a few of the original movies. So I was much more familiar with like the, the site of the next generation ship. But then it's like, 
it's a really pretty ship and it's really sort of like you do sort of like you know my heart races when like you you see those beauty shots of you know sailing over the top of it and seeing enterprise written along the hull and it's just it's and it's like you know whoever designed that thing back in the 60s i hope they're still alive to see this because like the thing it it looks you know like it's designed to stand the test of time you know you know the interior was not yeah sorry. sorry Uh, the interior was not that was not bad either. It was pretty cool, right? But I mean, nope. the interior was pretty significantly changed. You know what I thought like, was interesting about the interior is that sure, a lot of yeah. the shots that used liberal amounts of the um, glaring lights, for lack of a better word. Did anybody else notice this? Yeah, I think that's a J.J. Abrams style stylistic thing, which is that there's like a lot of shininess in the future. Oh well, they, that, they there's did a lot a of like lens lens flariness. Yeah, but but going back to the external, the the, the ship itself, uh, I didn't realize until I saw it in the in the theater that they. I don't think I were any uh, shots of the ship released leading up to it. It's not in the poster. I don't think it was even in the trailer. You don't really get to see the ship until you go in into the into the theater. look at it, man. Yeah, the teaser showed some of it, but not the whole thing. Yeah, and that I think yeah. you know shots of the is right now. Am I am I a huge geek for for thinking when I saw that I'm like oh they would never build a ship like that on Earth they would build it in orbit. <laughs> I thought the same, actually. Yeah, like, well, that's it would totally be unrealistic that they're building it like in Iowa and they're gonna like lift the goddamn Enterprise up in the air. Well, it's um I mean this was something that was <laughs> what. I think we're we're laughing what? at ourselves. You tell me. Oh, that, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, no, I guess we are kind of really going over the edge in terms of. Uh, uh, terms what, of we're geeking okay. out, man. Yeah, that's in what, terms they, of, that's what we do. In terms can of I, geeking out. Can I just, oh, yeah. sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> well, uh, this is you know there actually has been a lot of talk about this about how you build starships because once uh, TNG comes along and you have the replicator, well, why don't you just replicate? Entire starships, but um, you know, you I can't rep- machines. I don't think can you? Sure, you can. I mean, if you can rep- do that, you- I mean, they, they replicate like beverages, although not complicated. You try to replicate a decent glass of Romulan ale, it can't be done. <laughs> I yeah, <laughs> no, I've I've often had that that problem. Yeah, I'll drop it. <laughs> well, I mean, you could probably use transport technology too, right? Just to sort of beam a copy of it out. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that I was thinking, and I think I read this on, uh, you know, the Star Trek wiki, which is called Memory Alpha or something. Um, <laughs> a lot of the technology that they had in the original series that seemed awesome at the time has now been invented, right? And and we live with. And so I think it was a challenge uh, for the 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 cinematic dreamers of the movie uh, who, you know, to come up with something that seemed uh, continuous with the Star Trek universe and yet didn't seem just dumb. Like, wasn't like, oh yeah, that's a cell phone. You know? <laughs> and that, that like, the, the balance that they struck, I think, between, say, a pre-digital and a digital kind of vision of the future... Uh, was interesting. That is, you know, they they sat at computers, but the computers had buttons, and they weren't just like flat panel iPhone kind of displays like you see in the next generation. They actually had pushy buttons, you know, and like the thing where Scotty was in the uh, Scotty was in the sewage pipe or the toilet 
outlet or whatever whatever it was, the water pipe. Um, th- yeah. those that was were- not sewage. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess <laughs> no, I guess not. Like uh, <laughs> in the future, I think it's clear. There- yeah, you'll ne- you'll never see a bathroom on the Enterprise ever. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, it's not something that's really dealt with. But um, I think, I think, like, like those if, were some if there was serious. A Bible for the original Star Trek, that was in there. Those were some serious pipes, right? Like, and they were riveted together, and it was like that was like something that you almost could see on a on a uh, navy ship, right? Mm. Rather than being this like totally sleek. Uh, vision of everything, and yeah, they were painted white, and it was all lit very, very brightly from above. But uh, it's still—it was a pre-digital. It was like an industrial future rather than being a, a totally digital future. Oh yeah, I mean, if you've ever watched an episode of the original Star Trek, I think it was very clear to me the analog that they're using for what space travel is like is submarines and submarine combat. That's why you have photon torpedoes and that you're, you're going off of very imperfect information about where the enemy is. The external environment is so hostile. And that like, I, I definitely remember some um, episodes that like sort of depicted the combat. And it was very much like the combat in like the hunt for red October where like you have limited information about the enemy's position and you're sort of firing a photon torpedo and hoping it hits. And it's very different than the way they show it nowadays where it's like, you know, you're wheeling through three dimensional space and really complicated patterns and you're just firing off phasers and automatically. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a lot cooler and more realistic to our sensibilities nowadays, but I mean, it's, I, I, I think their model of what space travel was like was a lot more based on how precarious and primitive space travel was back then. And isn't that an interesting? I mean, isn't that an interesting thing, right? Where it, didn't it seem to you like the the technology depicted in the movie? I'm thinking now of the scene where Chekhov is uh, is trying to transport the people who are falling, uh, who are in free fall off the the drilling platform. Um, yeah. Doesn't it seem like that doesn't really uh, seem continuous with how we imagine computer technology is going to evolve from 2009 forward? You right? mean that that should be – that's one thing that should have been an easy task to automate? Well, or it should have been, it should have been automated. I mean like these yeah. – I think people – maybe people don't realize it, but I, I was reading oh, some sort of article that reminded me how much – like uh, aircraft flight, how much like uh, you know commercial air travel is automated, right? Mm-hmm. Is like there's a there's a pilot there doing certain things, but there there really is on these planes, especially the European ones. There's like a go button, and then you know, and uh, you know, of course, you need pilots there for when things go wrong or to deal with the unexpected, or you know, I, I'm not saying that the plane flies itself. I, uh, you know, d- d- American heroes, one and all, uh, and and like the most, and really the most highly trained professional. I think they like go back for a hundred hours of training every eighteen months or something like that. You know, love pilots. God bless the USA. But you know, uh, it is technologically possible to to really get an, an airplane that flies itself. And like, wh- that's not that's really not the case of uh, with the Star Trek that we saw, where it's where it's like, oh no, it requires my incredible finesse and uh, you know, lightning fast reflexes to uh, transport the guys. And that, you know, that seems like it owes more to the 1960s version of the future than it does to a 21st century vision of the future. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the idea that, that um, I mean, there were a couple of times in this movie where people's, like, skill as a pilot was very much, like, key to success. You know, that it wasn't just you tell the computer where you want to go and the computer will handle the comp- 
complex math. It was like your touch at the controls made the difference between success and failure, including the opening scene where, where Kirk's dad somehow like he only he can actually scuttle the ship correctly. Well, this again comes coming back to, um, you know, the antiquated old school idea of the, you know, single great man. Right. Mm. Who, who is, is, is the only man who can, who can save the day. Right. So, What's I mean, obviously that's, I don't know. That? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I have high hopes for okay, Obama. Let me, okay, let me, <laughs> let me clarify a little bit. I think I'm, I'm thinking a little bit of like the, the great man theory of history, for example, right? Where history is determined by, by the great men, the kings, the leaders, the politicians, the generals, as opposed to history is determined by the masses, right? The, you know, the, the collective cultural products and actions of peoples, Right, and that's kind of a you know a, something that that my 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 academic contribution to overthinking it is is this concept, right? Is that there's two ways to look at history. One is you know the great man theory, and the other one is the kind of the collective action. You know the you know, the, the group, the, the populace makes history, right? And you know and it's in Star not just Star Trek, but it's like clearly many forms of entertainment. You know, which is why the chosen one. Uh, the archetype is so popular, right? Is that you know, one great person, or at least in this case, a, f- a cadre, a few elite people, they are the ones that make the difference, right? We don't get to see just the, God only knows, hundreds of, of crewmen sc- scurrying around the Enterprise that are you know, critical to making these things happen. We only see uh, the elite. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, tell, they give us some time to see those people sometimes, Right, you know, there's there's other there's other episodes they visit. Those like Barkley shows up every once in a while, and this did the Next Generation stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was talking about before uh, early in this episode a third way of looking at history, which is, I think has some merit, but has some practicality problems. Which is this idea of starting from micro history, the idea that it's not great men who are making things happen, but it's also not masses and collective groups of people. It's tremendously complicated, intricate relationships between individual people doing an innumerable number of things through an, an, and further innumerable interlinking series of important or less important causes and effects, right? And then in other words, words, shit happens. Well, no, in other words, there's just so many people doing so many things that it's hard to comprehend it all. So we either use the shorthand by reducing the number of people or we use the shorthand of collectivizing it, right? Um, but the individuals are important, and I feel like you know modern society, modern experience has confirmed the idea that the individual is important and influential because we've seen how much things can swing based on the actions of just a few people. Um, but it, what it hasn't necessarily done is proven that important people are the ones who are in control and are able to fix things, right? So, I mean, I don't think Star Trek is nearly as bad as Star Wars in advancing the idea that only important people get to do fun and exciting things. And both of them are, 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 are um, not as bad as Saved by the Bell. Um, in, this, <laughs> in which the only people who get to be in any clubs in the high school are the same five friends. With the <laughs> club, they're in the home ec class, you know, they play volleyball, they're doing all I of just it. kind of assumed that like, the high school at Saved by the Bell was very, very small. <laughs> they just had a bunch of people. Those people were like from a nearby summer camp and they just happened to be There were like 20 camp. people in their graduating <laughs> class, right? I think when you, when you really consider it carefully, start, Star Wars is politically retrograde, right? That there's a, you know, a small ruling class class of philosopher kings it's aristocratic yeah it's totally aristocratic if not oligarchical 
Yeah, and I mean, like, it gets worse as it goes on. Because, <laughs> you know, by the time you get to Revenge of the Sith, it's just like, good Christ, what are they talking about? Right. Uh, like, what kind of system this of government? This is how democracy is? dies, Pete. <laughs> you know, another <laughs> thing Another thing about... There was this hot rumor that Tom Stoppard goes through a lot of that movie, and I, I... There's enough... There's enough weird stuff in that movie that I almost believe that, like, yeah. it's true to some extent. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. You Revenge of the Sith or uh, Star Trek? No, just Revenge of the Sith. And and he definitely has done some credited ghost work for like other George Lucas things, I think. Yeah, well Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, most notably, I think. It was right. one word. And so that like about. I totally I totally believe that like like this is how democracy dies with thunderous applause did not come from George Lucas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about the original series of Star Trek, every episode introduces somebody who is not part of the main group of people who becomes tremendously important. Um, albeit briefly and probably dying by the time the episode that owes more to the kind of guest star dynamic of episodic television. Yeah, than- but I think that they make an effort to show that there are people other than Kirk and Bones and Spock who are making a difference in this world or universe. Uh, most oh, of I, was thinking, been- I was thinking of the of the uh, of the next generation. Can you think oh. of a of a single person of consequence though who is not really a, a single person of of continuing consequence who is not a member of Starfleet? Um, in which on, show? On what? On any of the shows? I guess I was thinking of Next Generation just because that's what I know. But, like, maybe this is something that's common across the, the Star Trek universe. That, well, like, how about Waxana Troy? Waxana Troy is not part of Starfleet. Yes, uh, she is. No, Deanna Troy is part of Starfleet. Oh, Waxana Troy. And she's a... Sorry. sorry. Guinan. Guinan is a part of Star Trek. Guinan. <laughs> Don't forget about Guinan. That's a horrible mistake. She's so important. <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks she has these magical powers. I don't understand. It, no, she but does have way, magical that's like powers. A trick question. Because that's like, that's she like stays... One person is not part of the office who's critical to the office. Like, it's a show yeah. about... It's a, about a workplace that's a contained yeah. environment. So it's Freaking like... Everyone in MASH who's important is in the army. And that's ridiculous. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, because I, I I don't think that either of those is entirely fair. Because Star Trek is not necessarily about it's about a future society. It's not necessarily just a, a show about people in the military. Well, I feel like the first one, especially, it kind of is. It's about the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. The Next Generation is more about like the world. And then you know, Deep Space Nine is more about the, like, the populaces that inhabit it, right? Although yeah. I guess they cross over into all that other stuff. Um, but the thing is, you have to think about, yeah, I mean, they, they can't, what are the preconditions of this? They basically can't have a job on the Enterprise, right? In order to be, to not be in Starfleet. Um, which means that if the Enterprise is the location yeah. where most of the episodes are happening, then the only people who are going to be important are people who reoccur in featured roles in multiple episodes, or people who are like not soldiers who appear in it, or villains, or like people who are on the outside looking in, right? Like, um, like uh, what's his name? I'm trying to think, like the Klingon High Council guy. Um, I keep wanting to say Darmok, but no, that's the guy with the metaphors, which is the, my, one of my favorite episodes of television ever, by the way. Darmok <laughs> and Jalad at Tadag. One day when there's a boy dad overthinking it, I'm going to straight up write the short story about Darmok and Tanagra on the ocean. <laughs> like, I'm going to actually write, like, what the fuck happens and why it's so good as a man. Well, no, uh, we, know, we know what happened. I mean, we they, know they the salient details. Right? It's, it's, what, it's what they I do. Mean, is they know, go like, or they... What are, you, what, are you, what are you saying you're going to write? Like, the sun rose warmly over the ocean. Yeah, no. As Darmok. I want, to, like, I want to add the details to it and, like, tell the whole thing. Where Darmok is like, just this one, Tanaka. It's like, you're still an asshole, Tanaka. But, like, just <laughs> no, it's, it's Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Is it Jalad? For... Oh, I'm sorry. Shaka, when the <laughs> 
We should all, as a big take, we should each take one of those and write them like write the three hundred one version of Shaka when the walls fell. <laughs> Just like impossible. These walls are double reinforced titanium. <laughs> they will never fall. <laughs> I'm finding oh, this way too amusing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Calm down. It's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of there's a lot of history and a lot of love behind this franchise, and I think that's why we're all so happy that this movie is something that not only is doing well, but that people who aren't crazy about Star Trek actually like. Like women want to see this movie. Like I, I brought a girl this movie, wanted to see it. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you know? the only I mean, the only sort of real nudity is uh, is Pine, right? Don't you see his ass at one point? Or well, you know, I want to point this out to Mark. I want to point this out to Mark. Mark. Yeah, I'm here. Do you remember why you didn't see Crank 2, Mark? Oh, because of the uh, girlfriend capital issue. Yeah, because you were worried about spending, wasting girlfriend capital on Crank 2 that you could better use in other movies. This was not a movie that required girlfriend capital. Yeah, but he was was thinking of Terminator. (laughs) That's true. That's going to require some girlfriend capital. (laughs) I think, Pete, this is something that goes back to, like, one of my original observations, which is, like, I can't quite put my finger on why this movie is so appealing to people who would like never in a million years have wanted to see Star Trek Nemesis. They're like, yeah. what did they do that suddenly makes this like non-girlfriend capital, you know? Yeah, not, I mean, not, Nemesis training. is actually the only Star Trek movie I haven't seen. Um, but I you guess don't, you don't need to. It's okay. I mean, Although the way it's very similar, which is uh, the the villain is this sort of like outlaw Romulan with this mm-hmm. sort of like sinister large ship. Right, right, right. And tattoos. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I don't know. If I were to guess, I would say first of all, the impression it makes of not requiring you to see anything ahead of time, because people don't want to be the person who doesn't know what's going on among a bunch of other people who know what's going on. And in fact, I would say that if you were to make really? a Venn because diagram, I, I like to think that our our blog audience thinks of us that way. Well, here's the thing: if you want to make a Venn diagram between like. People who don't enjoy being the only person in the room who don't know things, you know, um, and you were to surround, like, and you were to put that in the same group of people who's like people who enjoy Star Trek, like, there would not be a lot of overlap. <laughs> uh, like, like, there are people who don't know things but enjoy being in the presence of other people who know things so that they can talk about it and learn about it and just sort of get the this, this scoop on stuff. But certain people are comfortable with the amount that they know about things, especially fictional things, and don't particularly want to be reminded that there's whole worlds out there that they're not part of um they don't want to all of a sudden feel less cool than a bunch of people who they don't that they feel superior to right uh i guess that's a cruel way of putting it. i don't mean to be cruel but um i mean you don't want to be the person who's out, left out of the party and if you say okay we're starting from the beginning we're starting from scratch um you know you don't have to know anything ahead of time the movie was very self-contained it was funny that was like the, i feel like that was the genius of the movie is that they made it funny like really yeah, but, funny. but i don't think we knew that going in they weren't like yeah. playing up the sort of like the light humor of the movie in the previews were they no, they well, were you know, the were... reviews for this movie were phenomenal. The reviews for this movie, I think... They, they really until... were. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's still in the 90s. Yeah, 90, I mean, oh, like... it's 96 or 97. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the it's reviews, really... I think, were a big part. The word of mouth, I think opening it a day early was a huge I, good idea because it gave people who are hardcore a chance to see it and spread the word on the fact that it was good. So by the time Friday rolls around, you already have the word out there, and I think this is a good movie to use that on. Wait, I uh, think they did the midnight showings, but did they, did they open it a no, day early? No, they opened early? it early. I had friends who were seeing it at 10 o'clock, Eight o'clock on Thursday. I think. Uh, unless unless the, the theaters up here were breaking the rules, I think this had an opening weekend that started on Thursday. Oh, got it. Terminator's yeah, yeah, yeah. doing that too. I mean, a lot of them. Just there's there's a lot of pressure on these films now to really perform well in that first weekend, and like that's kind of a make or break moment, which I think is not really 
not really fair. And also, I mean, I think also from a business perspective, closes off a lot of possibilities. But but never mind. The um, it did like I think seventy five million. Which while it's not, those aren't Fast and Furious numbers. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) We're talking all about this movie, and it still made less money than Fast and Furious. You know, it's curious that I would have guessed, if if you hadn't told me that number, I would have guessed that this broke $100 just based on, like, the fact that everyone I know, you know, wants to see the movie, and the the buzz is so good. And I almost feel like, like, I I actually just checked it on IMDb. The budget was supposedly, like, $150. i am not sure this movie breaks, like, I don't I guess it breaks 200 eventually, but like, you know, next next weekend there's another big one coming out. Is it Terminator next weekend? Or? Yeah. No, that's two weeks from now. Oh, two weeks. Right, but, not, but I mean, like, I've, I've got it's going to take some big hits in its business. I almost feel that this movie, like, barely breaks 200 eventually, which is not like a huge blockbuster. Well, no, but I think it'll make a fortune in DVDs. Yeah, yeah that's and, where... and I guess, and you, you got to figure that, like, you know, the sequel does more. That, like, this in a way is, is the first movie of a new franchise. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, you'll see. And is that is that domestic? Is that the domestic open? Because you yeah, don't know. Yeah, right. Well, It'll probably double that worldwide because I think this, the yeah. franchise has large worldwide appeal. Yeah, yeah. Super. Um, yeah, but Matt, I, you know, it's like the majority of the money a movie makes these days is actually not in theatrical release, right? It's in the sort of long tail effect of of DVD sales and and things like this, and it's going to get. I mean, what did Watchmen make? Watchmen probably made like sixty million its first weekend, and everyone was talking about it like it was a huge failure. You made fifty fifty five or something like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, well, I, guess know, I guess there is a big difference between fifty five and seventy five, but it's not a huge difference. This is well, one of the this is one of the biggest things that annoys me about the internet, right? It's it, the way everyone becomes. I don't a, know too much. Well, the way everyone becomes a fucking expert on everything overnight. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that these <laughs> these like the the performance of of movies. It's kind of you can't really game it like you can sports scores or something like that. Actually sports is is a good is a good analogy, right? Because like, you know, it's not you don't know it's it's as annoying as Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, you know? You know what I'm Are saying? Are you familiar with what the internet has done to sports statistical analysis and all that stuff? Like sabermetrics and no, all that? No, I don't. I've, I've heard of sports. I understand that football <laughs> is, is... I'm just saying that your analogy is not as apt as you think it is. Uh, because sports has gone through this tremendous uh, weird transformation. Although maybe I wasn't following you about what you were talking about. But um, like people become obsessed. I, I don't know. Do you think that people really feel like... I feel like you run into just as many know-it-alls. It's just that they have more evidence now. And they used to just make shit up, and now they like read stuff that other people make up, and they spread it around. Well, it just—I just, mean, I, I think there are probably just as many know-it-alls, but they've—they've they've broadened their domain, you mm. know, to include things that are really well outside their area of expertise. And now I don't—I don't mean any of the overthinkers. We are bloggers, and hence experts on everything. <laughs> and so I—I I might just for myself reserve the right to pontificate on any topic at any time that it pleases me. Right? I think that you just resent the fact that you have competition, that you wish you were the only person who know all the cool things that you know. Shut up. <laughs> I've been mean the last couple of podcasts. I've been tri- <laughs> I hate you, Fentel. <laughs> we need a heel on the podcast. We need a heel. We need like, we need like a under- Undertaker to everyone else's The Rock. You know, like we need a, a Stone Cold Steve Austin. If you really want to be a good heel, what you should do is like pretend to be like Rather's friend for a bunch of podcasts and then try to make him look as stupid as you can all of a sudden. <laughs> That's I, that's well, not very hard. I usually turn heel all I of do a sudden. good that, I do a good job myself. 
<laughs> you set yourself up pretty well for that. Should we create um, a sock puppet that just trolls the overthinking of comment threads? <laughs> it's just like you guys are bullshit artists, and I think you know. And this this whole thing is racist. Why do you, <laughs> like, why do you people have to think about things so much? Why can't you just enjoy movies? Why do you have to <laughs> analyze everything so goddamn much all the time? You guys read are stupid. the URL. Read the name of the website. But doesn't that? Well, I know, right? That that's. I actually like. I sent. A musician friend of mine in LA, who is a who's a friend of my dad's, actually a family friend. I sent him uh, the link to you know our five greatest key changes in popular music, and he was he wrote me back that was like, yeah, dude, you know Zappa said something once. Uh, he said that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And that's what I thought of when I read your article. And my response was, you know what? Fuck you, dude. A, <laughs> look at the name of the website. B, Zappa didn't say that. C, that's not the actual quotation. Okay, done, done, done. I hate know-it-alls. <laughs> Rather, why were you using the nerd voice earlier when you were um, trying to mock those who mock us because the, yeah no i guess i guess so i right, it should default, it, like voice yeah, for mocking it really should it is yeah it's because that's the voice of derision it really should be dude why do you people have to overthink about things so much no, overthinking was... it podcast no um <laughs> but don't, doesn't that annoy anyone else like isn't it isn't it annoying to hear some like stockbroker uh you know or, or something like out at the bar, like, oh yeah, you know that, like, uh, I don't know what Watchmen was an artistic success at adapting the book. I don't know what, whatever. I, you, you. Don't, don't alienate the stockbrokers, man. We need their, uh, we need their ad revenue, and they're gonna, they're, they will stop buying, buying your t-shirts as well. <laughs> you know, there, there was one more issue about the movie I kind of wanted to bring up to see what you guys think, and I think it's, it's something that. You just have to suspend your disbelief for. But it did occur to me that, like, this is – they mentioned Enterprise is the flagship, right? I mean, this is, this is the, you know, supposed to be, like, you know, a really quality ship. It's a distress call. And there seem to be a lot of complete rookies on the bridge. <laughs> you well, know they what I mean? There are no senior there. officers on the ship. It's all newbies. Mm. Well, they get methodically fired over, like, the early portion of the movie, right? They make some effort to, like, yeah, I, th- I think there is, like, somebody who's a communications officer who somehow doesn't know how to speak Romulan, so, like, he gets fired in a horror, gets put in the place. But well, Sulu is the one flying out of, like, space talk, and he's never flown before. You know, I mean, I feel like on The Next Generation, they made, like, a little more of an effort to show that, like, you really pay your dues out of spaceship before you're allowed to, like, drive the thing. Which is why it's, it's such a big deal when, when Wesley does it. Right. And I mean, I think, I think you just sort of have to accept the fact that like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, McCoy is in the head doctor and the head doctor dies and then he's in charge. Um, and Spock may or may not have been gone into space before. He's a little older than the rest. But like, but I mean, Chekhov is 17. Yeah, Chekhov and Sulu, who are like, you know, at the helm, you know, are both like, you know, as fresh faced newbies as you can get. And I just, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. It's, I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm nitpicking here. Hey, that's what we do. The real nitpicking point in terms of the inexperiencedness is Kirk going from not even cadet in the academy, but enlisting to captain in four years, right? And that, that's you know, part of his mythos that like he is like the ultimate, 
you know, badass product, the only person who's ever beaten the Kobayashi Maru. That, like, it was always a sort of um, feeling that when he was talked about in the show that, like, he's, you know, had this reputation that's absolutely legendary, and we only know part of the story. Yeah, I mean, but still, if, if I, there's one thing that I have to the nitpick about this movie, it's going back again to the whole, you know, your father was a great Starfleet captain, therefore you will be, and Pike, you know, like, christening him as, you know, first in command, like, this, this, this little kid, you know? If, okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to agree with you and, and say that if we're nitpicking, they, they sort of throw out casually that Kirk has, like, a genius intellect, that he is, he's tested off the charts and all sorts of things, um, but you never yeah, but really see... maybe tests of, like, of character or something. But you never really see what does he do in this movie beyond hand-to-hand combat, getting a little lucky and showing a little courage. Like, what does he do to show that, like, wow, this guy is special and this guy like does things that no other man could do? Well, there was a one scene where he puts like one and one and one together to figure out what's going on that they're flying into a trap. Yeah, and he's under the and he's under the influence of that weird vaccine at the time. With the puppy hands, which was kind of bizarre, I gotta the, say. Yeah, that was pretty gross. <laughs> but that, that was, I think, well, in all seriousness, though, that was like one of the comic things, right? That special touch that made this movie kind of work. Puppy hands. Haha, funny. Yeah, no, I mean, I like I liked the... And, and also, I, I almost feel that it's a little bit of... You, you have to have opportunities for McCoy to get into the action because not all Star Trek problems are medically related. And like, in fact, the, the problems faced in this movie, McCoy couldn't really help. And so that like, I think, I think it is critical to have reasons for McCoy to be like coming onto the bridge and like little things like that sort of like lubricate the script and like allow things to flow. For I sure. Know. I mean, I think I think there was some very artful storytelling going on in this movie. I, I think we can all agree that it was remarkably fast paced. Oh yeah. Uh, that it really was propulsive. That like there was never any people sat down to have a quiet conversation. To to its credit, that like and it really flowed along in a logical, exciting way. And um, yeah, no, and there was no scene about. Did you see that Onion video? Right, there's no scene where they <laughs> debate the relative merits of saving the Andorian ambassador, and they sit around a long conference table in the boardroom. <laughs> yeah, let me ask you this: Did you guys think that it was a mean-spirited joke that when Scotty is first introduced, he's talking nonstop about how much he likes to eat and how much he wants food? It's just that's just me. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was he was okay. stranded on a remote outpost for for years and right, years. Right, but it's like it's like an inside joke to fans that like if you watch the TV show, Montgomery Spot is like a fairly like energetic, muscular looking young man, and he really blows up like a whale. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just a little sensitive to that. But the, the fact that like he was really looking forward to like eating as much as he could, I thought was like sort of like ooh, you know, sort of. <laughs> Are you are you like gaining weight or something, Matt? Is it like a like a sensitive? Yeah, I guess I don't know. I just like I just like James. I was I was wondering that the the cast members who are no longer with us, which I guess would be DeForest Kelly and, and James Doohan, what they would think of their. I mean, I, I think Carl Urban was amazing. You know, did a really great McCoy. Yeah, he was for sure. He was great. I thought. And I like Simon, I think that like DeForest Kelly would have gotten a good chuckle out of that. I like Simon Pegg a lot. I like Spock yeah, so a lot. I liked I liked Uhura a lot. But uh, yeah, I mean, what they, they, they were all great. What has Shatner's reaction been to this? Does anybody know? 
He's I bitter he's, that he's not in it. Yeah, he was sidelined, side sidelined a little bit, right? But but although like if you think about it, I, I feel like it works really gracefully the way Spock is. Let's not forget that Shatner is dead in the future. They kill him off. And he is dead in the future. And it's, I can't see, it would be difficult to get him in the movie. You'd have to figure out a way to explain the fact that he's dead, but he's still, whereas Spock is still alive in the future. And so that it's easier to put Spock in the movie. Well, I guess yeah, like, that is a good point. technical about it, in Star Trek Generations, Kirk is, well, he, he dies, right? They show him. Well, he was sucked away in that energy beam. Oh, that's right. He does die. Okay. Let's no, he's, okay. he's straight up dead. They bury him. And yep. nobody in the next year, you know, Not, nobody yeah. in any subsequent Star Trek media has. I, I think there's a novel where he comes back to life, but I think it's sort of apocryphal. <laughs> um, I mean, what? I mean, basically what I'm saying is that, like, I don't think that having Shatner left out of the movie is, like, a mean-spirited thing by the writers or, like, a conspiracy against Shatner. I think it's just, like, it makes more sense to use Spock. You know, and I mean, and there is some, I like the scene between Spock, you know, old Spock and, and young Kirk. And I think that's cool. And I don't know. Yeah. And you get this sense that had Kirk, it been uh, William Shanner is just so much of a presence in the culture that it, he brings, I think, a lot more baggage with yeah, him. Yeah, he does. You know, yeah. and that like, it, I don't know. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought I, I thought that was really good. Anyway, we should wrap up. Uh, we uh, are sorry. Pete Fenzel dropped out. Uh technological issues, but on behalf of him and uh, Belinky and Lee, this is Matt Rather, and if you have something to say about the new Star Trek movie... Oh, I, wanna, I wanted to drop an idea and just see, see what you think of it. What if we have a live overthinking event in uh, New York City's Manhattan Island uh, around the time of the... Sorry? I've heard of that place. Yeah, right? Uh, around the time it. of the release of Terminator Salvation. I okay. like it. I, w- I want to do that. I'm, I'm going to be out of town the opening weekend of Terminator Salvation. Oh. But, um, if I could, you know, do that. Oh, well, maybe- you, were gonna be, you were going to be the main attraction, Mark. The idea was going to be <laughs> to, no, really, to, like, meet a live, you know, live in person Terminator fanboy. And then we could all, you know, go out to some sort of tavern for a tasty adult beverage. Uh, afterwards, and you know, overthink the movie in person. Perhaps even recording the conversation, the panel discussion, or some kind of Q and A, uh, and making that the podcast. But uh, you know, maybe it's something that we can do later on in the summer. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that. I'm I'm for that all all around. But I mean, Mark, I, I know that you're like really, really looking forward to the Terminator movie. I am too. Yeah, I have high hopes for it. But I somehow can't imagine that it's going to be as satisfying as Star Trek was. No, I mean, you're right. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, like, stomp on your hope. I'm just saying that, like, this. I, I don't expect to have a better time in the movie theater this summer than Star Trek. I thought that, I like, think, this, I think you're this saying was that this summer's Dark Knight. Yeah, but it's a, whole, it's a whole different kind of movie experience. You know what I mean? I, I, but it felt similar to me in that, like, I had high hopes going in. And it surpassed those hopes. And I was like sitting there like halfway through and I'm like, can they stick the dismount? And they stick the dismount. And it was like a similar sense of relief that I hadn't built my hopes up for nothing. So they're similar in that respect. I think part of that is that um, this movie has better pedigree. The J.J. The Abrams name attached to it. Yeah. As yeah, opposed you're... to Big G. And people are like – and also the there's been a lot of uh, negative buzz over the script and the rewrites that were not, not boded well for Terminator, I think. 
I want I wanted to kick my ass. I wanted to see Terminator and just, and and another one of those ideas that like why did we not make this movie ten years ago? Because it's such an obviously brilliant idea. Um, but we'll see. We'll be back in this podcast having this discussion. <laughs> you said it. We'll be back. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, we'll definitely do. We'll do it on the podcast. But you know, if hey, you know what, readers, write in if you want. Uh, if you want some kind of live overthinking event, you know, podcastoverthinking dot com or twenty eat log. Zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Or a comment uh, on the show notes uh, on overthinkingit.com. You, um, you know, let us know what movie would you like us to do. What movie would you like to see the overthinking uh, action live and in person uh, on New York's Manhattan Island? Anyway. Uh, so that is it for this week. Stay tuned for next week when I'm sure whatever movie comes out next week we'll be talking about then. This is how these things, I guess, tend to go over the summer, which is awesome. Uh, and in the meantime, don't forget to visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably uh, uh, doesn't, doesn't deserve. Kirk out. Engage. Oh, I was going to say fascinating. I still say it. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.